You don't want zero problems, big fella. This is uh, Julian Mark, and I'm here with uh, Joe Eskenazi. Hi, Julian. Oh, hi, yes. Hey, Joe. Um, We're trying to get John Izell on the line. John, are you there? I'm here, yep. John? I'm here. Can you hear me? I think he's coming in on the same line as the music. Okay, hold on. We're We're having some technical difficulties, but we will get him. We'll we'll get him. Uh, him. We'll definitely get him. Well, thank you for tuning in this morning. Uh, John Izell is a bottle line worker at the Anchor Brewery. John? Can you hear me? Yes, yes, I, we can. We can, can you hear us? Yes, I can. I can hear you. Um, hey, um, so uh, welcome, local, yeah, welcome to Listen Local. My name is Julian, and Julian Mark, Hi, Julian. and I'm with uh, Joe Eskenazi here. Hi, Joe. Um, hey, John, um, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, what you do? Um, sure. I work at Anchor Brewing. Um, I work in the bottle shop there. Um, so basically, we just work on packaging all the beer. So... We're the, the last step of the stage. You know, all the hard work goes into making the beer, making sure everything comes out fresh, and we put it in the bottles, cap it, and then put it in boxes and put it on pallets, and they send it out to the warehouse to head out to the world. Well, you know, not everybody can really uh, say that uh, they have this uh, kind of job. I mean, it's kind of a, it's an interesting job, and it's kind of a rare job. How long have you been doing it? Um, well, I've been working at Anchor for about two years now. Um, I came to it. I was very lucky. You know, I've, I've always loved beer <laughs> you know and right. craft beer uh, i was a home brewer for a long time and we moved to the area so my wife could go to school here uh, and you know it was just everything fell into the right place at the right time 
and I got a job at the place where it's like the epicenter, the, the start of everything for beer, you know? Mm. Um, and, you know, walking into that place for the first time was like a really moving experience. And to get a job there was even, it was and, just and My understanding world. is you all have the day off today on, uh, uh, against your wishes. That's correct. Uh, we had a fire yesterday. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's out of, out of anchors control about a fire. Um, and the electricity is out and but we cannot uh they informed us you know as soon as the fire and everyone's out of the building safe we were we we got into a a safe space across the street at a bar there over there that anchor also owns they explained the situation they took a minute to do like a little powwow uh and then they explained what happened and then they just said okay you know talk to your leads of your department if you're non-essential staff clock out and go home so you know all mishaps aside i mean why was it uh why was it a, a special experience when you walked into the first time like what what was what was it about the place that was that was special the place i mean uh well i mean i did my interview you walk up the front door um it's this you know this 19 it's like a retro office it's this big art deco building you walk in uh they send you upstairs and the first thing you see when you walk out of the staircase is just these giant copper vats uh. you know, that are you know that are just iconic and they're they're from germany you don't see anything like that in america um i did my interview in an office right next to those that used to be you know fritz maytag's office uh so it was just all the history and the the immensity of the of the whole experience just you know weighs on you when you're there so my understanding also is, uh, sadly, because of this fire, you guys aren't getting paid. Um, yeah, that's correct. Um, which, which just... is, which is unfortunately uh, dovetailing into uh, why we've asked you on the show is that uh, you <laughs> would 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 like to improve the conditions in this wondrous place. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is a place I love very much, and I would, you know, if I didn't like it, I would just leave. Um, but I don't want to leave. I want to make it better. For future people, employees, people like me, and people who are there now, um, I think it's important. So, uh, so you are. So, are you leading uh, in the unionization effort? Are you simply a part of it? Uh, what you know? What is your role in this? Um, we have a committee, an mm -hmm. organizing committee, and um, yeah, I'm a part of that committee. And, and could you just, you know, I mean, this is kind of a big deal. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, this is going to be the first uh, craft brewer in the country that is unionizing. Uh, I don't know if we can claim that. I think there have been other smaller breweries that have unionized in the past. Okay. Um, it's kind of a gray area. I know. Some My understanding is you'll be unionized. the first to unionize from within. Possibly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I and, know they're. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. So, so tell me exactly how this happened. I mean, what you know, um, from you know Joe's article that he he published, uh, you know, earlier in the week. It um it sounded like it took a whole year to sort of get things together. How did these? How did it come about? Uh, about a year ago. I mean, I think I wasn't involved right a year ago. I came on later, um, but I guess it was a group of you know employees that felt like they wanted to make a difference, and they they approached um, the unions, and they they went to like a finding the right match who would be a good union to represent anchor uh, who has you know or represent the workers of anchor and Sapporo you know um, and then they start having meetings talking about you know would it be a benefit to the company um, is it going to work out you know is it possible 
and then it just it just snowballed from there, uh, picking up supporters, um, trying to you know keep it under the radar of management because we're afraid of anti-union, uh, you know, movement or anti-union sort of campaign. Right. Was it hard Which, keeping it a secret? I mean, no, we weren't. I mean, because all the employees, there's a very strong fabric of, you know, friendship and loyalty. Right. And so we just, we talked openly amongst ourselves. It's not like we kept it right. secrets from people. Some people, most people were for it. You know, some people said that they they were neutral. They didn't want to take part. And then there was a very small minority that were, you know, not on board. But nobody told on each other, it sounds like. No, even the people who weren't on board didn't didn't go to management. Wow, that is loyalty. Now, I mean, do you anticipate yeah. some of the people who are not, you know, who were previously not for it uh, to join with you now that things are kind of, uh, you know, on a stronger uh, on stronger ground? Um, I don't, I'm not, I think there's a very strong, I think what's going on is once it has gone forward, they've, I know they've contacted a lawyer mm. that is anti-union. Uh, he is from an old law firm called Jackson and Lewis, which was named of course. the number one, you know, anti-union busting or the number one union busting law firm in the, in America by the American Federation of Labor. You know, the nothing ASL but the best for this brewery, right? Exactly, and actually, that's yeah. very interesting because the uh, international uh, warehouse uh, longshoremen and warehouse union, uh, if I believe yeah. I'm saying that correctly, yeah. um, also yeah. is involved in helping to unionize the uh, veterinary veterinary clinic here in the mission as well. Right. And um, and they and the uh, VCA hired the same law firm, Jackson right. Jackson Lewis. <laughs> well, he's not Jackson Lewis. He's he's his own deal now. I think. He's oh, okay. His, own. his name is Stephen Hirschfield. But from the lineage, Hirschfield, it sounds like. But he's from the lineage. Yeah, he's a he's a. Tell, tell us a little <laughs> bit about about what made the union drive so appealing that people that that it would spread to the vast majority of the workers and that you could keep it under your hat for a year what are what are the conditions that you would like to see addressed you know i think let's say going back to the fire uh, just for a minute just for like a, a second just to kind of touch on the things that would spark you know what i mean like when the meeting's over everyone's just like okay clock out and go home and I was really expecting there to be some sort of, you know, we're going to, don't worry, insurance is going to pay for this. We'll cover your wages or, you know what I mean? Or keep track of the hours you should have worked today. Let us know. There was nothing about that. There was just no, not even a flicker of thought about that, you know? And that's mm. kind of, that's kind of like how we were dealt with in the past. Uh, I used to work in the tap room um, and then we did like a, like a relief for charity. So we had people come in. Um, and we set up buckets for them to leave money, but we also set up, you know, tip buckets, you know, as we normally do. And at the end of the night, they just collected everything. They picked up their tips, they picked up this and that, and they just said nothing about like, oh, these were yours. Do you want to donate them or not? There was no hmm. sort of decision, you know what I mean? And that's kind of, it's just little things like that, um, that I just feel like we're not protected in some way. And my background I, I mean, I have an American accent, and I sound like an American, but I grew up in Australia. I worked oh. in Australia for a long time, and there's a lot of labor protection there. Oh, interesting. And just things things that I just took for granted working in Australia. When I get to America and work here at, at, at Anchor, I was just like, oh, those things don't exist. What, you what, know? Kind, of things, what kind of things do, uh, are you talking about? Just like, you know, um, the type of 
pay time off you get, the overtime mm. you get, the way lunches work, the way that, mm. uh, you know, you know, just the protection you have. If you work overtime, I mean, I'm not saying that we don't work overtime, but like when you work overtime, you get double your pay. You get triple your pay. Wow. You know, you get 38 hour work weeks. You get six weeks of paid vacation a year, you know, Christmas, mm. all that time is just automatically off, you That's know, amazing. all these kind of, you know stuff um and don't even talk about like taking tips away and stuff like that i mean that would that could never happen you know right um and it paid i i actually worked in an office that burnt to the ground uh when i was there um they sent us home with guarantees we're going to be paid Ah. Uh, they even paid up money that like we worked on commission so we'll pay you extra to like offset the commission that you're losing um we spent two weeks at home while they found us a new place we moved into a warehouse. We were there for six months. Same thing. Uh, we relied on walk-in traffic. Uh, we couldn't get walk-in traffic because we we're in a warehouse, you know, in the middle of, of the of the suburbs. Um, but they kept paying us. They kept treating us good. Gave us all our benefits, all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even a second thought, you know. And so, you know, that's that's where I'm coming from, mm-hmm. and that's where, you know. And it sounds like you know it's it's not just even you know these 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 uh, smaller things. I mean it uh, you know we kind of wrote about uh, what is your living situation like. Mm. Yeah, so the economic is always going to push. There's ideals, and then there's the economics of it. Uh, for right. me, um, you know, living in the Bay Area is tight. Um, my, we live in a two bedroom apartment. I've got three kids and my wife, so that's five of us. And where do you, where is and that? It's in Albany. Oh, okay. Which is, you know, um, over in um, kind of like the corner of Berkeley and Oakland and Emeryville area. Yeah. Yeah, my wife's going to Berkeley. So we're like in the university village. And her scholarship helps pay for the village, the unit, you Mm. know. Um, So we're here, uh, two bedrooms. And then, you know, a week ago, my mother-in-law just arrived. And she's taking up one bedroom. So, you know, (laughs) we got the bunk bed, the double bed, and the crib in one room. And then we got my my mom, my mother in law, in the in the second room with her. Oh, God. She needs her space. Too, full house. Know? It's a full house and one bathroom. So, That's... and it doesn't look like when my wife graduates, it doesn't look like it's going to get much better because there's not a lot of options out there. So, no. In fact, I imagine that you're going to be dealing with a a, a crazy housing market. Um, yeah. You know, may, maybe maybe sure. with her degree, she could move around, but that that doesn't work for you. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, she can. She can command where she goes, but I'm kind of I'm anchored <laughs> right, right there in, in Patrol Hill. So you're so so you're um are, so you guys are advocating for or you know pushing for higher wages so that you can live yeah. stay here in the Bay Area. Yeah, I mean higher wages so we just stay. You know, it doesn't have to. You know, I don't have to make enough to buy a, a house right next to Anchor. I know, I know that's never going to happen. I know it's never at least unless something drastic happens, but. Just maybe we can afford rent in a in a distance that's commutable. Right. Yeah. It's really not an outrageous ask, and I talk to a lot of uh, John's coworkers, and many of them are commuting in from phenomenal distances to get to the yeah. to the plant at very yeah. early hours. How far? How far out are they coming? Of Susan City. Wow. Oh, I mean, God. I mean, the outer realms of the Bay Area, Backerville. which is all too yeah. common here Backerville. in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure that I mean among among your coworkers, John. I mean, I don't know that anyone else has um, uh, a wife and three kids in the same bedroom. But but uh, Albany is is uh, is is. Uh, I mean, I imagine that uh, in the bragging rights of who has the worst commute. <laughs> 
yeah like, i'm pretty i'm pretty lucky <laughs> yeah. compared to those guys but still that's, but that's even a then, phenomenal like, situation that's a, a yeah. just jaw-dropping eye-opening situation yeah and even like when i first got like i have when i first got here and i had an electric car and i could i could cruise down the hov lanes it would take me maybe like 30 40 minutes to drive 10 miles to get to work not so bad and then getting home maybe an hour and then uh, 2019, they they revoked the, those rights for electric cars to be in the lanes, and I started to drive to work. It took me on my first day doing that. It was like an, it was crazy. It was like an hour and a half oh. just to get to work, and then you know it was quickly after that that you know, I moved to taking the BART. So, so uh, so what's next? I mean, uh, you know, everything is announced. Um, what uh, what is uh, is coming up that is that is important to your guys's effort? Yeah, I mean, right now we're just trying to get through these mandatory meetings that we're everyone has to go through. Oh yeah, let's talk um, about that. Yeah, so tell us about tell us about what those are. They're basically they break us up into small groups. They take us into like department. Um, we go up into a, a conference room where we're met with management, and they just basically lay out talking points of their things that they think that we should consider or be concerned about. Um, a lot of it is out of context um it you know you can make anything sound dangerous you know what do uh, they say the big, well and they're talking about high initiation fees and for the union. basically paying oh. dues during uh the negotiation process so what would happen he's like hey how much are you making now right well first they they gave us a very high rate you know and then we're just like well that's technically true that is if you make a lot of money you could be paying that that's the highest rate you could be paying uh-huh. um but that's not, we're not making that much money. So it's going to be lower than that. He's like, well, you want to pay dues on what you're making now when you're not, when you're not making more money. I said, well, that's not going to happen because you know, the ILWU doesn't do that. And it's just like, are you sure? Are you sure? Do you have that in writing? All this kind of stuff. You know, there's just a lot of pressure on like trying to scare us about little stuff. Um, and my understanding is that you don't pay dues until you get a contract. And my understanding is that that your dues are capped at two, what is it, a two-hour salary or something like that? Two and a half hours salary per month. Mm. Per so month. It's like 45 bucks a month. You so know, so that's, that's the facts. How do, why, yeah. why do we know that and they don't? Um, uh, you know, I think these are talking points that are coming from that lawyer. Sure. And I, I looked at, um, you know, I've been Googling stuff about, you know, the playlist for anti-union, and it's just step by step. They're just listening to what the lawyer is saying. Um, the other thing I've noticed, because we talk, you know, we we're, like I said, we've got this friendship uh, amongst the different departments, and the people who were anti, we're talking about people who were kind of neutral before that weren't so on board, um, a couple of them seem like they've got talking points from the same lawyer. They say the same thing, uh, another message that seems very untrue, they'll bring it up to me and say, hey, how come no one told me, how come I wasn't involved? Um, and it seems like they're irate about it. And at the same time, it's like, well, we did talk to you. We did say all these things. And it's just the same message that's coming again and again. It seems like it's like scripted. Maybe the lawyer got to them. Um, I actually got to talk to one of those guys. And mm. she's like, hey, what's up? Because some of them aren't talking to us. They're just like flat out just not just acknowledging wow. anybody else in the Berea. So it's wow. kind of tense. Um, but some, you know, some of them are talking. Um, and they're like, hey, you know, I talked to the lawyers. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, the lawyer said, you know, the company can't lie. The lawyers can't lie. The law can't lie. Right, <laughs> you know, right. So I trust the lawyers. I trust the law. I trust the company. And I was like, dude, like, you know, companies can lie. It's like the labor unions protect companies 
to lie. They're allowed to lie. Mm. You know what I mean? And this whole time, like the ILWU, the, the unions haven't, they haven't promised us anything. They just said, we'll help you organize. We'll help you get a voice. You know, if it all works out, then you can, you can decide, you know what I mean? But I think, you know, there's definitely a, a movement coming from this lawyer that's just turning things around. It's kind of ripping the fabric of our friendships and stuff like oh, that as well. That's, so. that's terrible. I guess, yeah. I mean, yeah. March 6th, I guess, can't come soon enough. That's when, when the factory side votes. I just, <laughs> I just wanted to time warp myself to that time and then just get it done. How are you feeling? I mean, I'm, I mean, the, do you feel that these meetings are an effective way to sow doubt or do you think that they, you know, they come off as, as uh, heavy handed and scripted and, and, and maybe counterproductive? I, you know, I think they're counterproductive. If I was the, if I was trying to bust a union, I mean, I guess you got to try something, but it's actually galvanized. Most workers come out of that meeting and just go, that was, you know, whatever. And then, talk about the points they'll realize they already know going in that it's what's going to be said and they know who the people are that's going to sit and they say it and I, I just it's not coming off very well from the, on their point of view i imagine you'd rather be making beer yeah i'd rather be at work i'd rather <laughs> you know not have this is a stress in my life you know what i mean to so like you're at work you go to this meeting they start saying things that are untrue you can't just sit there like i gotta start talking and say things in front of a, an audience, you know what I mean? It's kind of nerve-wracking to kind of stand up to to your managers like that, you know, in a public forum. So if everything... Then, oh, yeah, sorry. If, every, if everything went uh, perfectly um, uh-huh. at this point, what would... Um, uh, what Like, wh- when would you guys have a union? I mean, so uh, we do the vote on the next week. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a yes vote... I guess we have a union, and then we got to sign a contract. And that contract is going to take time to negotiate. You know, there's a lot of bits and pieces going in there. Uh, we want to make sure everyone of our workers gets a fair, fair part of the contract. You know what I mean? So, right. um, you know, there's a lot of part timers that want to stay part time. You know, so we got to look at what that's going, how that's going to affect them. You know, we've got the these older employees. You know, we want to protect them and their what they have now. Uh, so all that has to go in there, and then we got to talk to the company. And so um, I know, I guess you're talking to the the vet workers. They're two months in um, to their contract negotiation, mm. and I might add, during those two months, they have not paid any dues. So, right, you know. that's a good thing to point out. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, um, John, I um, I appreciate you coming on and, and for joining us this morning. I, I you know yeah. I wish you really the best, uh, you guys the best, and you know do keep us informed. Well, yeah, yeah I, I, I I plan to get as close to the brewery as they let me to get on March sixth. Uh, maybe I'll see you in the tap <laughs> room, and okay. uh, and Mission Local will keep covering this uh, very pertinent okay. San Francisco labor story. Sounds great. And thank well, you for giving us part of your morning. And sorry that you couldn't be making beer for the people. No, exactly. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time for uh, let me talk. All right. Well, take it easy, man. Take it easy, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was John Azell, um, anchor anchor brewer. Is he a brewer? No, he works on the bottling line. The bottling line. So mm-hmm. he puts he puts the beer in the bottles. I, I actually he explained it to us at the top of the uh, at the top of the hour there. Um, I believe he you know he's he's um, in logistics. So. Another bit of news um, aside, um, there was a, a very tragic thing that happened um, Friday uh, Friday evening. Mm-hmm. Jeff Adachi, uh, San Francisco's longtime uh, public defender um, and the only uh, elected public defender in the country? In the state. In the state. Okay, excuse me. In the state. Um, 
died. Yes, um, Jeff Adachi died in um, a heart attack or a heart attack-like situation mm-hmm. in North Beach on Friday. Uh, the circumstances are um, confusing and somewhat mysterious, and there is uh, anger and uh, and some rancor over the details being leaked to the press somewhat salaciously. So, so hold on. How did, how did you hear about this? Uh, f- I just saw it on social media uh-huh. um, that uh, that Jeff Adachi had died. I made a couple calls. You uh-huh. know, I, I sent you know condolences to the people in the offices in the office that I know, uh, and and they replied. You know, so it was not a rumor, and uh, and then. Uh, that was Friday, um, and uh, I mean, it was hard to believe because Jeff Adachi was a very vigorous person uh, in his professional and his personal life. He, he, he was 59 years old, but he came off as younger. Uh-huh. It was only in looking at his resume and his accomplishments that you could like start saying, yeah, okay, he's almost 60. He was you know, a youthful-looking uh, man, um, and he worked out, and he, you know, so it was, it was a surprise that he would die suddenly like that. Mm-hmm. Um, his... Legacy is uh, one of the most consequential in this city, but it's also one of the easiest to forget because it's the people that you don't look at if you're a normal, um, you know, middle class, upper middle class San Franciscan. It's the people who, you know, much of San Francisco government does not work, but that's okay because much of San Francisco doesn't need government and the people who do need government aren't the concern of the people who don't. But that's not how things work in the public defender's office. You must perform you must serve the people and it's the people who are in need and he did so you know while i feel that san francisco is a spectacularly mismanaged and badly run city i feel like the public defender's office was very very well run well how did how did he do that i mean why was jeff adachi you know this kind of the perfect man for this role now as far as the inner workings of the office and 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 you know um office politics and things, I can't say it was a fantastically run department, but I can say for the people it was fantastically mm. run because Jeff Tadachi was a um, uh, spectacular attorney and, and, and aggressive with a, with a thirst for justice and, and an uncompromising person, and he built a department that, that, that behaved that way. But, you know, it wasn't just his, his prowess as a litigator or even, you know, a political leader. He also, um, I mean, he wasn't necessarily passive when it came to bringing the office uh, He was uncompromising. Money. Right. He was uncompromising. Right. And so, you know, one of the main mm-hmm. uh, uh, pry bars of leverage that the public defender's office has is to threaten to litigate. Now, that's, that's something that, you know, if, if a police officer is, you know, charged with wrongdoing, uh, you know he's going to have a good lawyer and you know he's going to litigate. He's not going to take some crazy deal like so many people, you know, so that, that makes it very difficult to prosecute police in addition to um, other, you know, protections they get. In this case, also, when, when representing the most impoverished, Jeff Adachi's office, you know, did not take deals randomly just to get it off their hands. They would use that leverage and that and in doing so would get better outcomes for their clients. So, you know, um, we remember Jeff Adachi for the big cases that that office had. He recently, you know, uh, won a murder um, acquittal for an attorney who had uh, gotten into some manner of lethal dispute mm-hmm. on the streets of San Francisco. That was a big case. Uh, he, you know, was standing behind uh, Matt Gonzalez and Francisco Ugarte and others when they uh, uh, won in the uh, Garcia Zarate case with the right. shooting of Kate Steinle. Right. Those are big, high-profile cases, but the legacy of Jeff Adachi are maybe even the plea deals he got so that people's lives weren't ruined. Right. 
you know, and those people went on to live productive lives. Thousands and thousands of people went on to live productive lives because their lives weren't ruined by the criminal justice system. And what's more, he ran a full service office. It wasn't just enough. It's like, well, we got you off. Go back to being a homeless person. Mm. You know, it was, they would do basic social service. Right. And right. especially with juveniles. And, and that's a big deal. So, I mean, it was kind of a model office. And, you know, much of San Francisco has a... I could tell you as a government reporter, many people think that San Francisco is, is serves as an example to other cities, and it does, but not in the way you think. It's a badly run city mm. that that you know that only gets by because of um, its uh, amazing rep and because of the money that flows through here. Right. But that money doesn't necessarily have to go to the public defender's office, right. and that public defender's office doesn't have to have these outcomes. That was because of uh, it was well run, and and specifically you know in the in the mode of Jeff Adachi. So so uh, what okay? What are you hearing? I mean, it, kind of the natural success. Would to Jeff Adachi would be his you know lead attorney um, Matt Gonzalez who lit who uh, helped who uh, spearheaded the Steinley case. But what are you hearing? I mean, is it necessarily going to be um, Gonzalez? It isn't necessarily going to be Matt Gonzalez. Oh, it, it, you know, we don't know. It's whatever Mayor London Breed wants. Mm-hmm. Mayor London Breed, in her uh, statement about Monday's memorial service, which will be eleven o'clock at City Hall, uh, celebrated the legacy of Jeff Adachi, but. You know, that's interesting because part of that legacy was Jeff Adachi's handpicked number two is Matt Gonzalez. You know, this it, this in some ways ought to be an easy choice, but maybe it's not going to be, you know. And, and there are plenty of reasons for that that aren't, you know, proven out to be reported journalistically or said on the radio. But I get the inclination that this is not going to be uh, a neat and clean situation. Wow, uh, that's... You know, and we'll see. We'll see. There are, there are any number of qualified people in the office. You know, uh, the fact that Matt was the number two for eight years... And had and had a decade in the office before that, and was un- is unquestionably a superior defense attorney, and certainly sees the world through the same lens as Jeff Adachi, though he's very much the yin to Jeff Adachi's yang. Mm. Um, you know, Matt is a very um, calm and collected person, uh, who I've you know I've never seen him lose his cool. I've never seen him raise his voice, whereas Jeff Adachi was very demonstrative both in the courtroom <laughs> and out. So they were they were a wonderful team. 